0: Welcome to Teneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajiwara, co-president of Teneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. John Brennan is with me today. He served as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency during the second Obama administration, taking over from General David Petraeus and then uh, handing it over to uh, Mike Pompeo when uh, the Trump administration came in. While director, his deputy was Averill Haynes, who today is the Director of National Intelligence. John spent much of his career at CIA, among other roles he had there. He was the Station Chief in Saudi Arabia. He was the daily intelligence briefer to President Clinton, the first director of the National Counterterrorism Center under President George W. Bush, and he established the Directorate for Digital Innovation. Uh, and from 2009 until 2013 he served the Obama administration as the deputy national security advisor and assistant to the president uh, for homeland security and counterterrorism he is the author of the new york times best-selling uh, memoir undaunted my fight against america's enemies at home and abroad today he is a principal uh, with teneo strategic partner firm west exec advisor so director brennan thank you very much for for being with us today um so John, I want to start here. Here we are. It's uh it's December. It's a natural time to kind of reflect on on what has happened this year and where we are and, and and what we should be concerned with as we as we look forward into next year. So maybe before we start drilling down just some of the specific issues of Russia and China, et cetera, um maybe your sort of top-down or, or big picture reflections on on where we are. Um it's been a very, very complicated year and there's a there are a lot of risks and potential opportunities swirling around out there as you and I were just discussing in the green room. So how do you see the world at the moment?
1: Well, Kevin, first of all, thanks for the invitation to talk with you this morning. Um, it, yeah, over the past year, I've done a, a fair amount of, of traveling, uh, both here in the United States, as well as abroad, as uh, maybe some of the concerns about COVID are receding. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of folks, and uh, the, the words that I'm hearing from people about the global landscape, uh, words like dynamic, unsettled uncertain transitional uh, i think they see that there are just so many things that are going on globally that they really don't have a good sense of the where things are going in the future given that we have such disruptive events such as russia's invasion of ukraine uh, developments inside of china and between the united states and china that that global landscape is is rather um, unsettled and so what a lot of uh, individuals are looking at is what's going to be sort of the, the future. Uh, how is the current developments going to really affect whether or not you're in, in government or you're in uh, uh, private business, private sector, uh, even academe? Uh, how is the, the new world of the future going to affect the equities, the interests? Uh, and as you point out, the, what are going to be the challenges and the opportunities uh, given that not only unsettled, but there's a confluence of so many developments that affect one another. So I, I think people are trying to get a sense of how uh, we're going to see things evolve in the coming years. That's going to, again, affect their ability to navigate what I think are kind of, of very, you know, challenging shoals that are that are out there. Uh, sure. And so one of the things that when I was back at the CIA. What we try to do is, you know, not uh, look at, in the rearview mirror in terms of, you know, how to deal with the challenges of the past, but how to anticipate the the changes of the future. Particularly since technology has had such a profound impact on our lives and the the global landscape. Um, looking at uh, the challenges that the democracies are facing these days um and as well as the challenges that authoritarian regimes are are facing so again there's this general sense of um, in many respects unease because uh, of the very unsettled uh, global landscape
0: you know when i speak to ceos and others in the c-suite one of the things that's very clear and this kind of goes to the exact point that you were you were making but i want to ask you how it's impacting in, in your sense the US government as well and, you know, and and the White House ultimately, right? which is this, this confluence of events that are sort of unprecedented in history in terms of them happening all at once. right? So this kind of questioning of what role the United States is going to play and what, is that, what that is going to mean for the global order, the global system, globalization, essentially the operating environment that most CEOs came of age understanding that they were going to be involved in, the rise of China and how that's going to impact global operating environment and whether china is uh, is actually peaked as a uh, as a global power unto itself. climate change, the the sort of uh, the existential element of that, but coupled with the complex risks and opportunities, quite frankly, that come along with the transition to a sustainable, greener uh, energy future. And then, of course, the disruption of technology that you're talking about, not in terms of the next device that's going to be created, but this kind sort of fundamental alteration of the nature of societal and governmental relations and the like. And so a lot of CEOs sit there saying "I, there's no, there's no blueprint for how to deal with this, but that also has to be true in the intelligence community and at the White House as well. So um, nobody really has an answer here, yeah?
1: Yeah, and and there have been so many discontinuities recently, and by that I mean when I when I look at Western democracies, the United States being a prime example, there is such a a polarization internally in these these countries that's being reflected in the governments uh, that are being elected and their policies, and so I, I think that there is concern globally about how there is has been whipsawing. Uh, between administrations, we looked at the Obama administration and you know, forged the uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, joined the Paris Climate Accords, moving forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, only for, to have the Trump administration uh, tear up uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, you know, withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords as well as the TPP and other things. And so, I, I think there's a concern that depending on how Politics in these liberal democratic societies go that you can have this whipsawing back and forth. We've also seen it in other countries, where, like for example, in Colombia and Brazil, you go from you know left-leaning governments to right-leaning governments as a result of the uh, electoral processes. So it's, it's in many respects the messiness of democracy that again is manifesting itself in these discontinuities, not just in their foreign policies but also in their domestic policies. And, and I do think those actors on the world stage, whether they be governments or private sector companies, they, they wonder about what's going to be the next twist, what's going to be the next uh, you know, uh, change in direction. Uh, and so, I, I, as you point out, I think it's, there is this, so much that is going on that it's difficult to plan. And that's why uh, I do think it's important to be able to not anticipate the latest the next change, but be able to be positioned so that you can adapt to those changes. It's one of the things when I was at CIA, basically overhauled the organizational structure of the CIA in order to be able to adapt readily and quickly to changes and disruptions uh, in that that global uh, arena. Uh, And I do think that's the the key uh, as we look forward uh, because of the potential for for disruptions, for, for new developments, and those entities uh, governments uh corporations that that have that adaptability i think they're the ones who are going to be able to best deal with these these changes that uh, are inevitable
0: now i don't want to put words in your mouth but it seems to be implying that you seem to be implying that there's this concern it's difficult to plan ahead if there's this if there's this uh, whipsawing uh, of policy as you know as demo- as democracies swing from one end of the political spectrum to 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 the other that there's some more constancy at least in terms of policy visibility and direction of travel um from an autocratic state such as such as China but having said that execution risk does, just because this is the plan their ability to execute is more is obviously questionable but it does seem that just in the last couple of days, um, on on the China front, as you've seen these sort of uh, large scale protests that have um, uh, that have excited much of the world, um, and you've seen this subtle but very unmistakable shift on their zero COVID policy. Uh, just in the last couple of uh, last couple of days, and so you know, um, as recently as the 20th Party Congress, I mean, they 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 continue to double down on the policy, and then. You know, they'll, they won't say that this is a in response to the um, to the protests, uh, that it's all part of the 20 part plan and and, and so on. There's enough ambiguity in their in, in their stated policies that they can justify a lot of these a lot of these maneuvers. But it's impossible to to watch what's happened and think um, that there wasn't some sort of pressure that they are now responding to. But how do you I mean, how do you see this this point, though, that. You know, autocracies have got a, a state, a, a, or at least in China's case, a very stated direction of travel, a stated objectives that they want to achieve by certain milestone dates. Um, but the risk then becomes the execution side of that.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's it's been the, the selling point that Xi Jinping and even Vladimir Putin and others have made that you can count uh, on these uh, authoritarian systems because you're not going to have that whipsawing between administrations. Um, xi jinping over the last uh, 10 years with the belt and road initiative i think he's been able to say um that beijing is going to continue on this trajectory because of the stranglehold that the communist party has on the the government on the economy and on the future direction of china Um, and same thing with vladimir putin when he pointed out that the united states you know is not a reliable ally uh you know we're going to Uh, curry favor with uh, certain governments but for an administration but then the next administration is going to change course dramatically uh but when you point out in authoritarian systems you don't have the ability to vent uh the the concerns that you have in a in a liberal democratic society with elections and and politics and all of that messiness but what we're seeing in, in china now is this dissatisfaction that is going on after a a generation of tremendous economic growth and development, where they're used to, you know, high levels of GDP uh, increases, um, and now because of COVID and because of some more repressive policies on the part of Xi Jinping, I think there is this dissatisfaction that I think is is rooted in economic concerns because of the disruptions that these COVID policies and others have caused, but also a sense that the government is not being responsive to the needs of the Chinese people now it's there's some questions about you know how much this is going to actually influence uh xi jinping's domestic approach as well as will it manifest itself in any way in terms of china's foreign policy but i i do think that you know that argument that authoritarian regimes are able to maintain a a constant and consistent direction um is true to some extent because they do have this monopoly on power but at the same time, authoritarian regimes and systems are not invulnerable. They are vulnerable to uh, the pressures uh, that can be uh, that, that developed internally, that can in fact affect uh, not just the domestic policies of these regimes, but also their ability to operate on that global stage.
0: So let's stay with China for a couple minutes here. Um, you know, uh, the the um, I, I guess one question that uh, that comes up here is, well, just going back to what you were saying for one moment, media is making a big deal of the fact that these protests were sort of the largest in terms of total numbers since we've seen since the Tiananmen era. Uh, but I think we should be very clear, right, that I mean, China has spent the better part of the last 20 plus years establishing a very, very effective surveillance and security state. So you don't, I, I just want to make the audience understand where you stand on on the stability of the um, of the Xi regime even in the light of these types of uh, protests
1: yeah um, I do think that Xi Jinping is very much in control um, not only because of the repressive uh, security system that he has in place and the surveillance capabilities but also as a result of the last party Congress he has put in place uh, sycophants, uh and people who are going to remain loyal to him. So I, I don't think there's going to be a fracturing at all of the upper political uh, hierarchy uh, in Beijing. I, at the same time, I think Xi Jinping is a is a careful and strategic thinker. I don't think he's going to try to overreact to this, um, and he's he's going to I think try to suppress uh, these demonstrations so they don't get out of hand. Uh, but uh, and, and they are rather, they're spontaneous. There, there's not any type of, of leadership at this point. Um, and, and it took it, you know, the trigger of the reaction to the COVID protocols, but also that the, the fire that uh, uh, developed, that's really uh, because of COVID, it, they weren't able to respond quickly and led to a number of deaths. Uh, and I, I do th- see similarities to what happened with Tiananmen, which is that a lot of the younger generations coming out, I think they feel more energized but um, you know the the Chinese government back in Tiananmen uh, those those protests went on for about six weeks before they really cracked down and I, I do think they were trying to contain it um, I, I do think that uh, in this digital era uh, sometimes it's maybe more difficult uh, for a, a government to uh, suppress things without the, the video footage that makes its way onto social media at the same time the Chinese government has tremendous technical technological capabilities that security services are ubiquitous and and large uh, but i I do think that there is still the potential for uh, these types of demonstrations to put additional pressure on Xi Jinping that's going to lead him to maybe even relax more than he would like at this point some of these restrictions that he has uh, placed on the country domestically
0: you know you just um Said that Xi Jinping is, is known to be a, a, a very careful and strategic thinker. At the same time, uh, referring to the 20th Party Congress that recently ended, uh, you spoke about him packing the standing committee and Politburo with loyalists and even sycophants. And so I'm wondering if you think, um, there's always been this issue that autocrats over time become the, the, the quality of decision making let alone the quality of the decisions themselves, but the quality that goes into the decision-making deteriorates over time because they get surrounded by a smaller and smaller group of yes-men. Putin comes to power in 2000, and there's a lot of economic liberals and reformers around. You can't find any of these people um, around him uh, today. Um, But China seemed to have threaded the needle, in a sense, by having this that this renewal of the leadership that uh, was sort of put in place by Deng Xiaoping, the 10-year cycles, you know who the, you, who, knew who the successor was going to be, et cetera. Xi Jinping has just wiped that all off the table. Are you concerned that as strategic and, and, and intelligent as Xi Jinping is and what a plan he's got, that that quality of decision-making around him and with him himself is going to deteriorate over time, given the structure of his leadership's cadre?
1: yeah so it's a very good point and i uh, very much agree that leaders who are in place for an extended period of time particularly those that have been able to shape uh the government or their their leadership team uh, tend to become overconfident in terms of their ability to to navigate the challenges ahead of them i think xi jinping was very careful of the last 10 years uh, taking the steps necessary in order to consolidate his domestic position as well as to expand China's global reach. Uh, And the same thing as you point out with with Putin. But at some point, a number of these these leaders, again, um, overreach and they go beyond what their capabilities are. Um, And I do think sometimes their ambitions get ahead of the capabilities. And because they tend to be sometimes in a, a, a groupthink mentality where they basically determine exactly what the thinking is, uh, their, their prism is, is skewed and distorted. Um, and I wouldn't say it's just limited to government leaders. I've seen it also in, in companies and in corporations where if, if a leader becomes too comfortable and too uh, they they don't take into account some of the changes in that broader ecosystem that they need to be able to address. That some of the the capabilities as well as the strategies that they employed for their first ten or twenty years are, are no longer as effective because the the ecosystem has changed, but they've failed to take that into account. So it is going to be interesting to see how Xi Jinping, coming off of the Party Congress, having another five years uh, um, that he's assured, is he going to recognize that? China is is it still evolving and changing, as is the global landscape. Is he going to use some of those methods and tactics that were very useful and effective for him in this first 10 years? Or is he going to adapt? Again, it comes down to adaptability uh, and, and recognizing that uh, the, the future uh, challenges uh, may have similarities to previous challenges, but they always have new dimensions to them, and they need to take into account what are those new dimensions? how How should i I respond and react to the new realities? and sometimes the old tried and true methods are no longer going to be as effective as they once were.
0: Do you know as well as I do that uh, earlier this year, after the initial shock and awe of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, and we'll get to Russia here in a moment. but um, as 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 leaders around the world, business markets, otherwise, were looking around after this series of crises that hit them to think, what's the next what's the next next risk to drop? Um and I think uh, it's inevitable once you have something as big and as seismic as a rush as an invasion of another country that you're thinking, what's the next country that can be invaded? And so inevitably, we uh, and you fielded a lot of incoming questions with regards to China's intentions on Taiwan and whether that timetable would be accelerated, um et cetera. So, where do you stand on on how you're looking at the the China Taiwan situation, um, both sort of in the in the near term, let's call it the next couple of years, versus the longer term, um, and 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 how you can see that playing out?
1: Well, the 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 One China policy uh, from Xi Jinping's perspective is basically core to what China is. Um, and I think he definitely wants a part of his legacy, a major part of his legacy to be that while he was head of, of government, military, the party that Taiwan returned or came into the, the China fold. Uh, at the same time, I do not believe that he wants to engage in any type of military um, assault that is going to lead to you know a a large destruction of of taiwan i think he wants to absorb china i mean absorb taiwan because of its tremendous technological prowess uh he he i think realizes that any type of military um invasion would be exceptionally costly and bloody uh the taiwanese have formidable capabilities uh they, they would resist and i think xi jinping looking at what's happened to ukraine that despite what Putin might have thought was going to be a quick blitzkrieg op- operation that was going to take over Ukraine it was it was far from the, the what happened and China's military although it's big and capable and looks good on paper it really hasn't been battle tested at all and the the Taiwanese would certainly fight for for their homeland so uh, uh, looking out over the next several years i could see xi jinping doing things to try to test the United States in terms of what does strategic ambiguity when it comes to the defense of Taiwan actually mean? Might he decide to resort to some type of tactics such as putting in place some type of naval blockade or extending some of these air defense zones or whatever, just to see how the United States is going to react? But uh, I do think he, he needs to be mindful that the international, the swiftness of the international reaction to russia's invasion of, of ukraine uh, might be a harbinger of some type of reaction to a chinese aggressive action vis-a-vis taiwan and although there's a lot of talk about decoupling china from the international economy i think he knows that uh, china relies on that international economy and finance system in order to uh, thrive so uh, again my I guess my bottom line is I, I think he's going to try to continue to push. For the absorption of Taiwan, I think he would like it to be done in a non-military way. Um, unfortunately, the political winds in Taiwan are not blowing in his in the direction that he would like. But I, I do think that we will see some efforts on the part of uh, Xi Jinping to try to uh, again test the the U.S. position, but also put additional pressure inside of Taiwan to try to get it uh, looking uh, toward uh, China in a in a more accommodating fashion
0: how, how important do you think that the meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping was on the sidelines of the uh, of the G20? I mean, you know not a lot of headlines coming out of that. I don't think any word expected. but how critical is it just to have that kind of human connection? You have the first in-person meeting between the two of them since President Biden assumed uh, the presidency. Um, but you know, just in terms of establishing the guardrails and perhaps establishing a floor, uh, under what has been a deteriorating um, relationship, uh, do you think something was ac- or from your observations was something accomplished at that um, at that bilateral?
1: I, I think it was critically important. Uh, you know, both these individuals, Xi Jinping and and Joe Biden, are are steeped in international relations affairs. They they understand the the global landscape um, because they've been involved in it for many years. And when I think about Xi Jinping meeting with Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump had a very, very, you know, superficial understanding of a lot of these issues, but Joe Biden certainly has has lived them. But also, I think the Biden administration's approach, and it's not just President Biden, but also Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and others, uh, they they will be um, they will state their positions strongly, but they're not going to do it in a confrontational manner. Uh, and I think what they were trying to convey to Xi Jinping and his team is that. That the United States recognizes that the U.S.-China relationship is a complex one, it's a multidimensional one, and we are going to have areas where there's going to be some profound disagreements, and it's going to be contentious, but there are also areas where I think that both countries can find ways to cooperate and to lessen the the temperature and tensions that exist. And so I do think those face-to-face meetings are are very important as a way to convey, certainly from Washington's perspective, that we're not going to be just have this, this sort of blunt force pressure against China, despite some of the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington. And so I, I do think it was was important and, and and helpful. not saying that it has you know been a game changer from the standpoint of a lot of these these issues but I, I do think it sent a signal of interest in working through some of these issues in a productive and a, an effective manner.
0: Do you think that that, that that message is is adequately being uh, uh, conveyed domestically as well? Because it seems as if the deterioration of relations has translated into a pretty chilling effect um, in academia, uh, even in some of corporate America, this kind of almost, um, uh, suspicion of all things and all Chinese nationals. Um, and, you know, I'm just wondering if we're overdoing that to some degree. I mean, you know, um, it should come as no surprise that China's got a spy agency, just like we do, and spies spy, that's what they do. But is there something more nefarious going on? I mean, putting back on your, your Director of CIA hat on here for a moment, um, Chinese activities within the United States, um, and and, and how that's translating to um, to Chinese students, uh, Chinese science professionals, and and the like
1: here in the US. I'll make no mistake. I I believe that that China presents the most serious and sort of long-standing or um, lasting uh, strategic challenge to the United States for many of the reasons you say. I mean, they have a very rapacious appetite, not just in the United States, but globally, to um, try to, steal intellectual property, uh, gain uh, access to, to sensitive uh, research uh, areas. Uh, China, I think, aspires to be, become the predominant world power in just this. So the FBI and the intelligence community um, have their hands really full because China is just so large and they can tap into this diaspora uh, That's you know, businessmen academic students uh others uh, organizations companies in order to be able to pursue their their agendas and and objectives and so therefore there's also this very strong bipartisan sentiment that that china is a is a challenge and a problem and so I, i do think that is that is seen in inside of china that's they know that they are the number sort of one longer term strategic challenge to the United States. But at, at, at the same time, I think the fact that the Biden administration now has been rather measured in some of its rhetorical comments about the demonstrations in China. And it's been criticized roundly by a lot of the Republicans. I, I think, that they again, they are trying to walk this this line in terms of not trying to be seen as unjustly, unfairly, <laughs> inappropriately interfering in China's domestic issues. But at the same time, you know, respect for human rights and saying it's legitimate for people to, to demonstrate. But I, again, I think China um, on so many fronts, and it's on the technological front, it's on the digital front, it's on the, the trade, commercial, uh, and the military security realms as well. China's strength is, is formidable. And they're going to leverage those capabilities uh, in order to, again, try to gain advantage vis-a-vis the United States in many parts of the world. That's the whole reason behind the Belt and Road Initiative, be able to put those roots down. But uh, we're not going to be able to resolve a lot of these tensions in US-China relationship easily. But again, I think the Biden administration wants to send a signal that uh, we will compete where we need to, but we're not going to do it just because there's this, you know, anti-China sentiment that seems to be building here in the United States. So I
0: want to I want to shift gears now and, and and turn to the big geopolitical event uh, of this year, which is obviously the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. It's been going on for you know the better part of ten months now, um, and uh, you know the the clear signal has been that Ukraine thanks to the support of the United States and the Western Alliance uh, financially, militarily, um, and of course politically, uh, is, is quote unquote winning. Um, and they have reclaimed quite a lot of the territory that was originally uh, taken by Russia in the, in the early stages of the invasion. Russia for its part is now um, engaging in um, missile strikes against critical uh, civilian infrastructure. Um, so, how do you see things playing out here as we move into winter, um, but as we prepare for, frankly, you know, spring and summer next year as well? Um, what's your what's your sense of the state of the war, and 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 therefore, given where we are now, where things can can go?
1: Well, I think the Ukrainians are going to continue to put military pressure on the Russians in uh, the battlefield. They've had the momentum. To taking Kharkiv, uh, having the Russians withdraw from Kherson, uh, they 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 have been able to take advantage of the incompetence of the Russian military forces and the leadership there. Uh, so I, I do think they're going to try to continue to prosecute it. It's going to be more difficult in some areas because of the winter months, uh, but then I don't think they're going to relent because I think they do smell, you know, some additional blood. Um, at the same time, I think Russia and Putin realize that you know he he doesn't he can't call upon his conventional military forces to reverse their fortunes on the battlefield because they have demonstrated time and time again that they're not up to the task which is why he's going after critical infrastructure civilian targets he's trying to put the pressure on the ukrainians to see whether or not it's going to weaken their resolve and then put some additional domestic political pressure on Zelensky to see whether or not there can be some type of negotiated solution there um, and and so i i do think that putin has recognized that his ambitions were unrealistic um and i think he's going to try to uh, maintain uh the the foothold that that russia has right now in, in the southeastern portion of the country maripol the area you know this bordering crimea uh and and hoping that uh there's going to be a, a a war fatigue that will set in not just in ukraine but also in the the west in, in nato countries uh, i think he he is uh been disappointed so far uh that that, that uh weakening resolve has not uh become uh, manifest yet in policies uh but but i i think this is going to continue to be a, a rather protracted conflict that russia is going to try to utilize um not just these missile strikes against critical infrastructure electric grids or other water pumping stations but also try to make better more use of the the drones that he is he's uh, procuring from iran uh try to replenish his missile inventory uh I, I don't think psychologically putin can um acknowledge that this has been a a failed policy failed effort uh he's going to try to i think uh retain whatever territory he, he can there and, and see whether or not the, the coming months will provide maybe some new opportunities for um, a, a respite in terms of, you know, the, the drubbing that his, his military forces have taken.
0: When you look at uh, the constellation of leaders and, 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 and populations in Europe and as well as domestically here in the US, I mean, you make the point that um, he's been wrong so far with regards to wavering Western resolve um, and avoiding war fatigue. But going forward, if we head into 2023 with all the other complications of life and other risks that may, uh, that may unfold, um, and if the war is as hot as it was in 2022, I mean, we're looking at you know, 100,000 casualties plus on both sides at this point, um, do you see that fatigue risk there?
1: It, yeah, i uh, I do. And when I've traveled to Europe recently, I've talked to some of you know former colleagues and friends, and they are concerned that there could be some wobbly knees on some of the government officials and politicians as the um, inflationary pressures, recession, other types of economic challenges um, really complicate that that environment. Um, so it, it, there there is the potential for that to to weaken as far as the, the NATO support. But, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians want to continue to prosecute this war, because as the Ukrainians continue to make progress, as it's not a frozen conflict, I think they feel that that's going to be the, the best argument uh, to make to NATO countries the United States, that this support should increase because the Ukrainians are on a, on a roll and we need we need to maintain that. Um I think there's still you know some uncertainty about what putin may may try to do um, in a non-conventional way. Um, I, I think the, the a lot of the concerns about tactical nuclear weapons has receded a bit. But I would still say that it's on the menu of options for him. Might he decide to go asymmetrically in terms of you know digital attacks uh, against NATO countries, put some additional pressure uh, internally uh, in the European countries? Was that? uh the explosions of the Nord stream one and two pipelines underseas was that the work of, of russia as a way to send a signal to europe that there are vulnerabilities there it's not just the undersea pipelines uh but also the undersea uh, cables uh fiber optic cables so i i think there's still a lot of of things that can happen in the coming months that will affect the ultimate trajectory but at this point i think putin is going to continue to try to put that pressure on the ukrainians as well as on, on nato uh in terms of uh the the pressures associated with maintaining this level of support for the ukrainian forces and i think he's hoping and i think it's unrealistic that there's going to be a a significant weakening of that resolve to support ukraine and even though kevin mccarthy who's going to probably be the next speaker of the U.S. House has said that there's going to be no blank check to Ukraine. Um, There's never been a blank check to Ukraine. And I think he he may try to restrain somewhat the Biden administration's support, but I, I do think the administration is going to be able to count on enough support in Congress to be able to continue to provide support to Ukraine, at least for the foreseeable future
0: wanted to ask you about Iran here as well. So earlier this year, it looked like there was some actually real momentum toward um, getting back into the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, and then obviously those talks uh, have broken down and there's nothing going on, um, uh, at least that's, uh, that's overtly being reported on. Um, at the same time, we have seen um, an unprecedented level of protest um, in, in, in Iran. Um, and then the last point I would make is, is that, you know, the lesson that Iran must take, just as everyone else does uh, from the Russia-Ukraine war, is that um, the United States will, is reluctant to get into a hot war with a nuclear power. So do not give up your nukes uh, for anything other than the most strategic of deals that could come your way. Where do you see Iran um, right now? Uh, actually, do you see any any wobbling to regime stability with these protests um, over over time? Um, but but where do you see the Iran story today?
1: Well, I you know these are the most significant demonstrations of protests in Iran many, many years. And I think you know the unfortunate tragic death of you know, this the, the Iranian Kurdish woman Mesa um, while she was detained by Iranian security forces was the spark and the trigger to set uh, these demonstrations off. And frequently in the Middle East, and as well as other parts of the world, it, it takes that spark if the if the forest is is dry. And the Iranian forest is pretty dry because, and mainly it's a result uh, in many instances, not just in Iran, other countries, uh, because of economic disenchantment, and because of concerns about corruption, and because of repression of the authoritarian regimes the the demonstrations though have been rather spontaneous uh they're driven in large part by a lot of you know women who have been outraged and by the youth but the iranians have resorted to these repressive measures and have killed a, you know a lot of iranians as well as incarcerated you know many thousands so i i do believe that the iranian government is is not at this point threatened as a result of these these demonstrations uh, i do think it's going to continue to face these challenges because. The, the economic situation in Iran is just so so awful. I think it's going to be tested when Supreme Leader Khamenei passes uh, away, because uh, then there's no questions about who's going to replace him. Will it be a Supreme Leader? That could be, again, another trigger that's going to set off uh, demonstrations. But right now, there's no real leadership uh, in these protests. Uh, Unlike in the late 70s when you had a very formidable um, exile, Iranian exile group uh, under Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, you don't have that now. There's really no credible uh, exile group or uh, resistance group or leadership. So um, getting back to the, into the Iranian nuclear program, uh, they, they have enriched uranium at, at much higher levels than was allowed under the, the JCPOA. I don't believe that they are um, at, at the point of making any decision about developing a nuclear warhead um, and enriching uranium to weapons grade uh, that said i think they still have you know these stockpiles i i believe that the chances of restarting the jcpo right now are very very low um, not only because of what's happening inside iran and the repressive measures that they the regime has taken but also i think the iranians are unwilling to uh, turn the clock back and to give up uh, what they have have done, because they they did that once before in terms of destroying their centrifuges and giving up their heavy water and even disabling reactors, um, only in their minds to be duped by the United States because they gave all that up, and then the United States tore up the agreement. So uh, at this point, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able to forge that uh, that uh, agreement uh, in the, the near future. But, at the same time, I do not believe the Iranians are going to go forward with any breakout scenario uh, because I think they know that that would in fact provoke a a very, very adverse reaction on the part of not only the United States but also the Israelis. And uh, again, at this point, I, I don't think they're they're in a position to to weather uh, such a a reaction.
0: You know, going going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about this sort of this, almost dizzying array of risks that are out there that uh, that are challenging to kind of keep an eye on. You know, over the course of this conversation, we've been talking about the big headline ones, Russia, Ukraine, China, things like Iran. But, you know, when you kind of sit back um, and, and consider what's on the headlines of the major uh, major newspapers and even the think tanks and the like, what do you sit there and think, you know what, this is what's not on the – uh, not on the front pages, or not even in the you know in the middle of the paper. That that we really ought to not lose sight of. That is that is potentially moving. What what kind of keeps you awake at night? That's not being particularly well covered out there.
1: Well, I think there there are some issues that are being talked about and covered, but I don't think that there is the type of of aggressive action taken to mitigate them that is necessary, and I am somebody who's very concerned about the, the effects of, of climate change. What it's going to do as far as, you know, rising sea levels and leading to the displacement of populations you know, from coastal communities into urban centers across borders, increasing a desertification of areas that really is going to, again, lead to those population movements that really have profound political, economic, geostrategic implications um how what we're experiencing right now in terms of you know the energy crisis uh, thankfully you know oil prices have come down but given the um concerns about um energy uh, reliability, uh, reliability that some of these uh, steps that were in place to try to address um carbon emissions and and climate change are being pushed uh, into the background and I do think it's the proverbial you know, frog in the, in the pot of boiling water. It's going to continue to get hotter and hotter and hotter, literally and figuratively. And I do not believe we have the, the policies either in individual countries or collectively, globally, to be able to address what I think is going to be an increasing challenge over time. And then in the digital environment, I, during my career, you know, I, I witnessed, personally, the, the profound changes and how we communicate, how we interact, and that digital domain uh, is the venue for, you know, most human activity at this time across all different uh, sectors and domains. Uh, and so the it, it is tremendous engine of prosperity uh, and continued uh, growth and advancement of the human condition, but there are just so many potential challenges that we face there and when I think about quantum computing and what's that's going to do to encryption and and how that's going to I think radically and profoundly uh, change uh, some of the, the 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 things that we we do um, that that the, the technological revolutions that continue to take place um, concern me and then related to that digital environment what we see happening right now in the in the social media with, with, with twitter the, the issue of you know what is the appropriate role of government to try to um, govern <laughs> if appropriate what happens in that that digital domain given that the digital domain is owned and operated you know 90 percent or so by the private sector um, what is the role of the government in in monitoring and and uncovering uh, things in, in that environment and um, in terms of freedom of speech and privacy and security? And you know these are the real fundamental challenges, I think, of the twenty first century that um while are mired and the the challenges that are in our inbox of the day. and I'm not under I don't want to you know understate the significance of you know Russia, Ukraine, and China. But some of these more almost transformational developments in that that global environment that our children and grandchildren are going to be, you know, experiencing and and having to deal with, I think these are the, the issues that uh, we, as a as a global community, really need to take stock of and and try to work in a, in a more cooperative way. And maybe I'm being idealistic and naive here, but. Uh, I do believe that there is a is a need for for that type of, of of work together. How concerned are you? You know, we've been talking over the course
0: of this conversation for the most part about people like Putin, Xi Jinping, President Biden, Ayatollah Khamenei. How concerned are you about the rise of, and and this speaks to the technology issues, technology and the concentration of extreme wealth in terms of super super empowered individuals. Um, who take on almost um, state-like power in a sense. So m- much is being made of the Twitter situation um, because it's unfolding in real time in, in front of us. But there's another perhaps lesser reported story that, that pertains to Elon Musk um, as well, which is his control over the Starlink system. And he's, he, has, uh, he has given or donated or deployed Starlink into Ukraine that's helped Ukrainian people and Ukrainian military forces continue to, to uh, communicate. But he has suggested that that Russia and Ukraine need to come to the negotiating table and Ukraine's gonna to have to give up territory. Um, and in order to kind of achieve that for for peace and saving lives, he might turn off elements of the Starlink in certain in certain places to you know to influence facts on the ground. Um, that seems to be an individual inserting themselves into a state-on-state war in a way that's sort of unprecedented. How concerned are you about that, or is he just sort of a sui generous uh, character that uh, isn't really replicated anywhere else?
1: Uh, well, although Hinama you know, certainly is sui generous in terms of who he is and what he has done, I don't think it's a it's a solitary sort of phenomenon. Because um, uh, you point out, people with tremendous wealth, tremendous capability, have the potential to really be quite disruptive and to shape the few. Pu- course of of events and developments and Elon Musk certainly has done a significant amount of that already but then it comes to the issue about well we want to make sure particularly in liberal democratic societies that we're not going to be stifling that type of entrepreneurship and innovation and 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 independence in many respects at the same time when it is disruptive when it does have a broader impact on societies and can be harmful at what point does the government you know step in and how does it do do that um and i i I think that's one of the that's one of the 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 great features of democracy is that you don't want ever to have one person having this inordinate amount of power and when i when i look at some of elon musk's tweets when he's doing a poll of you know his followers about you know what the outcome should be about whether to you know uh, put some of those suspended twitter accounts back or whatever it's it's a provides a very skewed perspective of what i guess the not only what the reality is but what the broader uh, societal interests are uh so I, I i am concerned particularly given that there is you know a handful of individuals now who have un, uh, untold wealth that and also believe very strongly in the in the righteousness of their their views, and are going to put their imprint on society in a manner that is separate from any type of you know democratic system and 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 values. Uh, so it's, it's again it's it's the type of challenge that when I look out over the next several decades, especially liberal democracies are going to be I think quite you know frustrated in terms of how they continue to advocate cherish those values that underpin democratic systems but at the same time do not let individuals with individual agendas that may in fact be antithetical not just to democratic values but also the the the, the welfare of society how do you address that and you know i don't have an answer to it but i know it's a it's a looming looming issue and challenge So uh,
0: an ever-growing number of surveys that have done of corporate leaders and uh, CEOs and boards and the like um, continue to show that geopolitical risk continues to rise um, in in terms of the perceived risks to businesses that uh, that these leaders see. So as you have pivoted um, out of government service into advising a lot of companies and you kind of look at how these leaders look at these risks. Some of which we've been talking about, and then many which are obviously more specific to them and the industry and the business that they're in and what their footprint is. But as you as you get to know these people more, do you think that corporate America is taking the right approach? Are they well equipped um to, to both analyze and therefore navigate through um these these risks? Are you are you comforted by the level of sophistication, or do you say, wow, There's a lot more work that needs to be done here because this stuff is only going to get more complex and compound upon each other
1: well i think it really runs the spectrum and the companies that i have dealt with and interacted with um i have found that there are some that really understand the importance and the need to take a broader perspective um on where they're they're their future lies and what are the uh, factors that will influence their success or and their failure and there are companies that um, are a bit um, isolated in terms of the, their their perspective. To me, and it was something that I very much advocated when I was in government, you need to have individuals at the senior levels of your organization that are able to uh, have a, a broader perspective on what's happening in the world. Sometimes individuals are just so focused on their their sector or their their industry, and they're very narrowly focused um, that they don't take into account these broader changes that are taking place that again are in that, what I refer to as the ecosystem, and how their, their market is being affected by these broader changes and and um uh, developments and so i i I do think so i've met some ceos and c-suites that that uh, have a, a real focus on on their their business but at the same time they take that step back and they look at those again broader market developments um how technology is affecting what they do um, just because, again, something worked in the past 10 years doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. Uh, that they, they need to take into account these changes that are taking place and um, how they need to, again, adapt. To me, it's adaptability, and you need to make sure that you don't have either rigid structures or rigid approaches to issues. need to be open to um, adjustments. To be able to attack in certain areas because things are happening and again, having this this broader appreciation um, of the of the the world and these these. Again, developments changes, uh, I I think it allows 1 to again. Be able to make adjustments in their organizations in order to deal with those those changes.
0: You know, in a way, we had a a real world test of this earlier um, earlier this year and actually stretching back into around this time last year. Right. Which was that the U.S. government, the administration um, and the intelligence community uh, sort of to an unprecedented degree declassified intelligence um, to allies and adversaries alike, but also to corporate America um, to say, hey, listen, our analysis is that this is going to happen. Russia is going to invade uh, Ukraine. So get ready. Um, And it shocked me, therefore, to a certain degree on February 24th, um, that things went like this. There were companies, like you suggest, who had listened, prepared, prepared their people, prepared their operations in Ukraine and in Russia and elsewhere around the world, um, and had an immediate action plan uh, of how they were going to deal with it. Others, on the other hand, seemed still surprised, and so either they didn't listen, or they didn't believe, or they didn't know what to do in the wake of what the U.S. government was telling them. So I guess the question is, why um, did uh, why did that happen? Number one, and number two, you know, as you look back on that uh, on that policy decision that was, I believe, advocated by Director Burns and by Director Haynes to the president, um, that um, was that was that a was that good policy was that effective and should that be a template um going forward in how the u.s government uh, can interact with corporate america um considering that corporate america on the china front on the digital technology front and the like is on the front lines of all of these um all of these challenges that we face as a country
1: well i think the intel's community and administrations over the past number of years have tried to be more forthcoming as far as what the intelligence and analysis say about the future course of events you know sometimes it's right sometimes it's wrong um, you know we shared intelligence about uh, Saddam hussein uh, back in 2003 that proved to be wrong uh, so i can understand that there is some skepticism there but again i think at the same time uh, whether your your companies or governments even if you believe that there is a you know 1 in 10 chance of something happening 1 in 10 chances is not all that you know out of the realm of possibility. And so it's, you you need to be thinking through the various scenarios and that you're able to then react to some of those unanticipated developments and have your contingency plans in place and and know what you're going to to do. Uh, You you know, you can't anticipate all the different scenarios that are in the realm of the the possible. Um, But I think what you can do is to say, well, in the unlikely event this happens, you know, this is how we're going to approach the issue or, or deal with it. And I, I think um, b- being uh, disregarding the potential for these very disruptive and unanticipated events can be very, very uh, uh, damaging to one's ability to be able to react. I mean, nobody anticipated the COVID you know, pandemic. Um, but yet, there should have been, I think, plans in place in a lot of companies about what what will we do if there's going to be some type of unknown major disruption in terms of global supply chains or other types of, of things? How are we going to then revert or or take steps that are going to mitigate the the damage and the effects of of that disruption? Um, and if if you're not anticipating any of that at all you're not going to be able to deal with it at the, at the time. You need to give some forethought to these, these issues.
0: I wanted to ask you one last question because our time is up, but if, if, if you'll indulge me for, for one moment. You know, you, as I, as I mentioned, when I was uh, going through your biography, uh, spent a great deal of your career at CIA um, devoted toward um, uh, combating terrorism. Um, and, you know, with all of the challenges we're experiencing in the world right now, one of the things that's kind of gotten relegated to the back pages is global terrorism, um, you know, from the likes of the Al-Qaeda's and ISIS of the world and, and, and others more focused, if anything, actually, on domestic terrorism. But give us a sense of, uh, of the state of, um, uh, of, of these organizations and the threat that they currently pose to the U.S., its allies, and its assets distributed around the world.
1: Well, I think over the past, you know, 20 plus years since 9 11, there has been tremendous work done to decimate Al Qaeda, you know, Islamic State and, and others because of increased and enhanced uh, international cooperation on these fronts. Intelligence sharing and, and other other things. That said, you know, you still have some of these core ideological groups. That are, are burrowed in in different countries. Uh, Al Qaeda still exists. and in a variety of, of countries, you, know, you you have uh, a variety of of domestic terrorist groups that have domestic agendas, but that's what happened with the Islamic State that then decided to go beyond. So, although I think the the threat of of terrorist attacks from these groups has has lessened significantly because of the work that's been done, uh, I think the their ability to regenerate. Um, and I am concerned what's going on inside of Afghanistan PAC area uh, might this lead to, you know, a future incubation of a, a terrorist organization that has a international agenda and an anti U. S. agenda. Uh, it does take some time to develop that and we, we saw it happening with Al Qaeda over the course of a number of years. Until they were able to carry out those attacks. So, I, I think we cannot ignore it. Um, and we need to continue to nurture those those relationships internationally among intelligence security services and governments to try to ensure that the appropriate steps uh, are, are taken to not only mitigate the threat, but also to be able to uncover any of these uh, plans uh, as they uh, move down the, the operational uh, timeline.
0: Well, John Brennan, I want to thank you so much for your for your time today. If there's a if there's a silver lining to everything you just said, it's good. It's that we're going to have plenty of subject matter to discuss on this series uh, next year as we continue. Um, but uh, I want to thank you for your time and your insights today um, on a broad range of issues and what um, uh, and what corporate America ought to be thinking about right now. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kachiwara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at teneoinsights at teneo.com. See you next time.